0: Will you pray with me? Father, we have gathered here to proclaim to the world that you are the true king. Despite all of the messaging that we can be king of our own lives, we reject that and we happily submit our lives to you. Your laws and your ways are reliable and reliably wise. So when we submit to you, we know we are in good and loving hands. We trust you with our time and our talent and our treasure because when we give back to you what is yours to begin with, your kingdom grows and our joy in you grows along with it. Lord, we ask for deliverance when we are tempted to grasp for control. We confess that we worry, believing that we can add to our lives through it. Help us to keep in the front of our minds that everything we have is from you. Help us to accept these things with gratitude. Help us to prioritize our attention to your kingdom. Lord, we confess that we have all in some way made ourselves the judge of what is right for ourselves, no matter what your word tells us. In this way, we've imitated the sin of the first humans, so we repent of that right now. We hand our will over to you. We are secure when we submit to you. Father, we are thankful for the promises in your word, and we set our hope on your promise that your kingdom will never fail. It will never be destroyed but instead it will fill the whole earth we set our hope on your promise that by your grace we will set aside our perishable bodies and put on imperishable bodies and we will inherit your kingdom as your children we are set apart from the world for your purposes and so we devote ourselves to you father help us and help other churches that are seeking to be submitted to your word and your ways Help us to represent you well so that more and more people will see the beauty of your ways and they will join us in praising you. And when the world rejects you, help us to endure when they reject us as well. Give us courage so we can be bold and give us grace to display your love as faithful image bearers. We thank you for your patience with us and we pray that we would extend the same patience to one another. Give us ears to hear your word today. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Thanks, Ryan. Why don't you open up to Daniel chapter 7, and uh, we will begin there this morning. For those of you alive at the time, do you remember where you were when the Berlin Wall fell? Do you remember where you were when the USSR crumbled? Or maybe you remember when Saddam Hussein was overthrown in Iraq. For those of you that are Even younger, do you remember the Arab Spring just a few years ago, when the longtime Arab leaders of many countries were overthrown? Perhaps it was one of those moments that caused you to realize that the maps, borders, and the lines on the globe can be rearranged and changed on a whim. I know it was for me. On August 18th, 1991, my family and I were vacationing uh, in Black Butte in Central Oregon. I just turned 12 the month before and so I was a little young to realize what was actually going on with the fall of the Berlin Wall and the end of the cold war but on this occasion I had just turned on a TV show to be entertained and in breaking news popped on the screen because the Soviet president at the time Mikhail Gorbachev had been placed under house arrest and a coup was coming In short order all of the former republics of the USSR would begin declaring their independence and the once mighty Soviet bloc began to crumble. I remember the look on the shock, uh, of shock on my father's face and the surprise as he watched the news for he had grown up with the Cold War in place. And I couldn't stop thinking at the time about all the maps and globes within my classrooms that would need to be adjusted and how much work that was gonna be. The giant red USSR needed to be replaced with all the other countries, the various nations that remained. I remember thinking, how can countries that have been around the entirety of my life at the time, how can they be so fragile? And this was the first moment I understood that the study of history is the study of the chaos that has occurred as one country devours another. And this kind of chaos unsettled me. This chaos continues today. Simply read the geopolitical news and a wave of anxiety will wash over you. For the people of Israel, Their history was no different. It was one of chaotic uh, Gentile nations, the waters of the chaotic nations crashing around them. Egypt had enslaved them. Assyria and Babylon had come against them and exiled them. They began to wonder if God was still in control and if they were still his people. They wondered if there would ever be an end to the reign of terror that continued to come against them with every new despotic regime. I can only imagine if I felt unsettled when the Soviet bloc fell, how unsettled they must have felt. Those Hebrew exiles most likely wondered what the plan of God was and if he had forgotten about them there in Babylon. And so, beginning in chapter 7 and extending all the way through the end of the book in chapter 12, God communicates to his exiled people through the visions that he grants to Daniel. And the message he provides is one that would encourage them and encourage their endurance and trust in his sovereignty, even if it felt like chaos was swirling all around them. That message was a simple one, and it was that earthly kingdoms rise and fall, but the kingdom of God reigns forever. Earthly kingdoms rise and fall, but the kingdom of God reigns forever. Can I get a hearty amen to that? This truth was one that communicated to God's people in times of trouble that they need not fear, nor buy into the chaos of the world around them, but simply stand on the truth of God's word and the security of his throne of mercy and grace. And it still provides us with this same assurance today if we submit to the reign of Christ. As king. Now, we've come to the second half of the book of Daniel, and arguably the most important chapter, the crux of the book, if you will. Thus far, we've proclaimed the sovereignty and authority of God, but here, Daniel's vision will give imagery to that understanding, specifically looking forward to the reign of God's Messiah, the one we know as Jesus the Christ. Just as the first six chapters dealt with the experience of Daniel and his Hebrew friends in exile— The last six chapters will speak of Daniel's visions given to give hope and confidence amidst that exile. So let's dig in and read through the chapter. We're going to read the the chapter in its entirety, and then we're going to take a look at breaking it down piece by piece. So join me there in Daniel chapter 7, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth, It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat, his clothing, was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire." The visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured in broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the ancient of days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth, and trample it down, and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. So clear, you guys good with that? We can just head out? Yeah, you're good? All right, good. Well, no, the first thing that we see is that even though they seem untouchable, earthly kingdoms will rise up in power, but their dominion is limited. Earthly kingdoms will rise up in power, but their dominion is limited. Here in Daniel 7, the chronological tape has rewound just a little bit, and we find ourselves actually sitting prior to chapters 5 and 6 and the events that happened there. Babylon is still standing, just barely, and it's under the new direction of King Belshazzar, and off in the distance, you hear the drumbeats of war from the Persians encroaching upon their borders. As we saw in chapter 5, the famous and long-standing King Nebuchadnezzar that had brought success and power and prosperity to the people, well, he had just died, and there had been this series of coups and murders Lots of conspiracy. And so they now find themselves, the people of Babylon, find themselves with an absentee king named Nabonidus and his good-for-nothing son, Belshazzar, sitting on the throne in the city of Babylon. And all of this gives us a background, though, that if you felt unmoored in 2020 and the politics that surrounded us in 2020, then you can only imagine what Daniel and the rest of the Hebrew exiles felt at the enthronement of Belshazzar. It seemed as if chaos was the norm. How would their people now fare under this good-for-nothing king, under the rule of such an evil man? How would they get back to the promised land? How would they rebuild their temple? These visions that Daniel has given are a benevolent response by God himself to those very concerns. Daniel becomes the messenger and tool of God, used to encourage his people and give them a firm standing amidst the chaos. And so in that first year of Belshazzar, Daniel has a vision by way of a dream and he writes it down so he can tell the message it contains to his people. The dream is made up of three separate visions and then a fourth that is the interpretation of those first three visions. And the first part of that vision takes place at the shore of what is called the Great Sea, possibly a reference to the Mediterranean here. When you're talking ancient Near East literature, that would be the Great Sea. Now it's a sea in the midst of a large storm that is brought about by winds that are coming from every direction, north, south, east, and west. You can imagine the combination of the tumultuous sea as if you're standing in the midst of a hurricane with waves crashing around you. A very scary thought. For ancient Near East listeners, especially Hebrews, this would have painted quite a picture in their minds. In ancient Near East creation accounts, from the Epic of Gilgamesh and the Enuma Elish and so on, there was a clear theme that order came out of chaos. When we look at our Bible, even within our own Bible, we see Genesis and we think creation in our Western mind. And we think the placing of things, the building of things, but in the mind of an ancient Near Easterner, what they would have thought is taking the chaos and building order out of it. And so in Genesis, we begin with a world immersed in the waters of chaos without form and void. And it's over this scene that the spirit of the living God hovers and works to bring about the creation of Genesis 1. Out of this chaotic scene in Daniel's dream come four beasts that we are later told in this chapter, they symbolize three great kings and the kingdoms over which they reign, and then a fourth kingdom that has a plurality of leadership, but is led by one primary ruler that speaks and acts against God and his people. Great efforts have been made over the 2,000 years of the church on the part of many theologians and commentators and pastors to speculate who these beasts are describing, and it's done out of a good heart to teach their people. Efforts have gone down to the minutia of each described item, from the ribs in the mouth to the unevenness of the bear. But as with the idol created by Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 2, we see that four kingdoms are presented in most conservative contemporary circles as an absolute answer, not just a question or a thesis, but an absolute answer to whom these beasts are prophetically speaking. Many of you may have read about it or or been taught about it. As with Daniel 2, you will hear efforts made to assure readers that these absolutely symbolize the order of the Babylonian, Medo-Persian, Greek, and Roman empires. Some others split it into Babylonian, Median, Persian, and then Greek as the final fourth kingdom. Certain characteristics are taken from each of the the beasts and matched to a known historically powerful world empire. For example, the third beast is an animal that is quick, and so that must mean that it's Alexander the Great and the conquering of the Greeks. And it would make sense that God gives some of that. Like for example, to be fair, some of them do make sense The first, being Babylon, makes a great deal of sense. It seems to summarize the story of Nebuchadnezzar, as we saw in chapter 4, in that in his pride, he was led into this beastly, sinful nature. He was given up to that sinful nature, and only God could restore him to the mind and stature of a human man. It would make sense that God would deliver a vision to Daniel and to the people in Babylon that is tied to the empire in which Daniel lives. From there on, however, the connections start to get a bit more arbitrary. And friends, if you search enough literature on this topic, you will find more possibility of what the wings of the leopard and the ribs and the lopsidedness of the bear mean than you care to ever know. And usually it has to do with the enemy, nationalistically, of the author at the time of the writing. So what do we do with these speculations when we read something like this? Should we be bold and confident about them and tell people we absolutely know what they meant? Well, in answering this question, I find great solace in the words from Paul to his protege Timothy, a young pastor, when he warns him about vain discussions and speculation that will arise in the church. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3-7, through 7, Paul writes to Timothy and he says this, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. You see, friends, that's the job of a pastor, is to promote the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge, the church's charge, is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now, I have to tell you, I grew up in a home that was very into prophecy, very into the rapture, and man, when I got my hands on a Bible from a very early age, before I'd ever gone to seminary, before I'd ever had any mentorship, I thought I could make confident assertions about what the Bible said, but I was wrong. And I probably did damage to the people that listened to me. As a pastor, our job is to help steward the faith that God has given you, not to make confident assertions about things that the Bible seemingly leaves a bit ambiguous. Now, there is definitely a context here dealing with specific vain discussions that Paul was talking about, but I think the principle still applies. It is so easy to get sucked into these discussions on what various biblical metaphors could mean. And friends, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with discussing among friends over a good beer or a good coffee what some of these ideas mean, but we need to be so careful that in doing so, we don't miss the more important point of what is being communicated. And I fear that in trying to focus on the beasts and figure out who the Antichrist is, we miss the bold and blatant statement of who the Christ is. We miss the focus of this text if we do that. The focus that earthly kingdoms rise and fall, but the kingdom of God reigns forever. For the Hebrew exiles of Daniel's day, it would have provided little solace if God's main point to them was to tell them the exact prophecy of the upcoming empires that would conquer them. Imagine if I came up here on a Sunday and said, hey guys, I got a vision from God. I just wanna let you know that this country will be the next one to conquer us, and then this country will be the next one to conquer us. Y'all encouraged? No. And so that isn't the point of this passage. So then what is the point in describing these beasts and the earthly kingdoms they represent? Well, let's think from the view of the audience this was being communicated to, to the exiled Israelites, the people of God. How did they view these beasts mixed together of various kinds? Well, you guys remember Genesis 1. In summary, it is the ordering of God's good creation out of the chaos and disorder. Over and over throughout the chapter, God orders things according to their kinds. Here's an example, Genesis 1.25. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. Do you get the drift? And God saw that it was good. God is not into mixing together different types of animals. You see, the God of Israel was the order maker. What the chaos monster, the enemy of God, wants to make disorderly and destructive, God takes and uses for the good of his created order. This is a huge part of his character. He is the order maker. So these mixtures of animals were meant to represent the Gentile pagan kings and kingdoms who revered these odd mixtures of winged lions and such as godlike in their idolatrous worship. And this would have caused the Hebrew recipient of this vision to view the beasts as evil and disorderly and quite honestly, grotesque. In the ancient Near East, whenever an animal would be born with a birth defect, it was seen as a horrific evil omen. And so with both the Hebrew culture and the Babylonian culture in mind, they would have seen these beasts and gone, man, that's grotesque. There is also a precedent in ancient Near East literature of using four symbolic kingdoms to speak about the whole of the earthly kingdoms to come. You see, in these four beasts, Daniel is given a view of the whole of the corruption of the worldly systems and governments and kingdoms that have existed since Babylonian society began and will exist until the time that Jesus rules and reigns in fullness. And it is the Lord that determines their end. God is communicating to Daniel here that it feels disordered and chaotic and grotesque because it is. When humanity operates in our pride, the effect of the fall consolidates from beastly individuals into beastly wild kingdoms with wild rulers. In our original sin, we no longer rule over God's good ordered creation, but we become beasts ourselves fighting one another for power. And this cycle has continued and will continue and even grow more defined and arrogant as time goes on, culminating in a point in human history where a world system will exist with leadership that is blasphemous in its pride and arrogance toward God. But even then, friends, notice that it's mocking that arrogance. It's as if this little horn with this little mouth is speaking great things against God, right? It's mocking the idea of this arrogant voice. When that was or will be, when that empire was or will be, what that did or will look like, and who did or will lead it will be discussed further in Daniel, but never to a point where we can make confident assertions. The end result is that these raging wild beasts were to symbolize the chaos that the people of God see surrounding them all throughout their history. But God's vision delivered to Daniel continues. Even though things seem chaotic, even though present circumstances seem like we will be crushed by the beastly powers around us, that is not the truth of the matter. Because even in the midst of this chaos, God is still in control. Earthly kingdoms will rise up in power, but their dominion is limited. Even here, in the beginning part of the text, we see this from two points. First, notice with me that each of the beasts, while fearsome and wild in their appearance, are still under the control of the sovereign God. The first beast, for example, has its wings plucked, and it's lifted off from the ground and forced to stand, and the mind of man was given to it. Who was doing all these things? A sovereign authority outside of the beast. The second beast was commanded to arise and devour much flesh. Who was it commanded by? A sovereign authority outside of itself. The third notice was given dominion in verse 6. Who was it given dominion by? A sovereign authority outside of itself. The one who gives authority and who takes it away. The one who in Daniel 2.21, we learned, removes kings and sets up kings. Daniel is given a vision that clearly communicates that even when it seems that the rulers and authorities of this world have the power and are acting in disorder and chaos, God is still the one with his hand on the rudder, guiding the ship to port. Earthly kingdoms will rise up in power, but their dominion is limited. But that then leads us to the fourth beast, and this beast, you will notice, is unruly and grotesque. It doesn't even have similarities to any created animal of God's design. It implies that perhaps this is a kingdom that is otherworldly in its source, led perhaps by the adversary of God himself. Its destructive power is supreme, and it's full of that pride and arrogance. Its head is adorned with multiple horns, symbolizing a plurality of leadership, multiple leaders ruling over this beastly system. And there is one that has pride in his eyes and hatred for God in his heart. And he works to wear out the saints of the Most High in verse 25. And he's seemingly the head authority of this system. But even with this horrible last beast, its ability to inflict damage is limited by God's sovereign reign. Look there at verse 25 with me. Notice the wording. The holy ones... The saints of the Most High, God's people, will be given into his hand for a time, times and half a time. The Chaldean words underneath the word time is that it is a set period of time. It refers more to its limited nature than to its exact chronological length. Many of you have been taught that this is one year, two years, and then a half a year. And people wrongly inflict on this the idea that it has to be talking about the great tribulation of three and a half years. But friends, I want you to notice that it's a single time and then a plural times. No one knows if it's two or more. And yet we've inflicted on that passage something that it doesn't say. What it is saying is that this worldly system has an end. It will seem like it will have a set time. It will then persist in lengthening of that time And just when it seems like it will go on forever, its set time will be brought quickly to a conclusion. What it means is that even with this grotesque ruler of a grotesque worldly system that seems contrary to God, they may rise up in power, but in God's sovereign reign, their dominion is limited. To the people of God in exile in Babylon, and to the people of God throughout history, ourselves included, This is good news, because in spite of the chaos we see and feel, we know that the eternal God sits unmoved in sovereign rule over all. The eternal God sits unmoved in sovereign rule over all. At the same time Daniel sees the vision on the shores of the great sea in the earthly realm, he is also given a heavenly vision, He's suddenly taken before the throne room of God, the place where the eternal God, who has existed from eternity past and will exist through eternity future, rules as king of the cosmos. He is pictured holding court in order to pass judgment. Thrones are placed. His heavenly army is before him in a number so large they have to use the largest numeric words they can come up with to describe it. His clothing speaks of his holiness and purity. His white hair speaks of his eternal nature and wisdom. And from the seat of his authority comes forth judgment of fire that covers the whole of the earth in power. And if you think you, can't get away, you can get away from it, he's got wheels on his throne, for goodness sakes. Right? This was a normal picture on the throne of ancient Near East rulers because it spoke to how far their reign could stretch. The scene we are given is unmistakably a trial. And in the, in the ancient world, books were kept to record every major activity and decision of the king and his court. And so the books here are opened, and they were books of the recorded activity of these Gentile pagan nations. And specifically of this final beast and the horn that spoke blasphemy toward God. God provides Daniel with a glimpse into these two realms, the reign of the wild human kings on earth and the rule of God in heaven so that he might see the drastic contrast between the two. One is operating in conflict and chaos, each beast attempting to rule over the other and be more ferocious than the previous one. And God, coolly, calmly, firmly, conducting divine affairs unmoved by the chaos occurring in his creation. And what is the outcome of this judgment? While the little horn is screaming, blasphemous, arrogant, prideful words, rebellious towards God, God opens the books and in the divine council of angelic beings, pronounces him guilty and declares the penalty of eternal damnation and destruction In the pit of fire. The other beasts have their dominion, their power and authority removed, but their existence remains for a set period as one wild kingdom is absorbed by the next, and the remnants of each of these still seen even in our present day. The reason that God is able to stand firmly above the chaos is that it is not surprising to him. In his divine wisdom, he ordained the human institutions of governments and rulers so that the sin of mankind would not go completely unchecked in total anarchy. And this is why the Bible calls us in multiple places to pray for and be subject to human governments that he has put in place. And at the same time, God's people will find ourselves in the midst of conflict with these same governments because while they think that they are autonomously reigning as sovereign entities, they are not. They will ultimately answer to the one true king, the eternal God who has weighed out their actions, judged them, and found them wanting. Contrary to the public opinion of our day, true peace and shalom will only come by the divine reign of Christ in human hearts, not by the reign of human government. But when we find that earthly governments go astray and even come against God's people, Daniel's vision is intended to give a message that God's people are to endure in faithfulness, regardless of what we see or feel. And we can stand firm in that knowledge and in that endurance, because while earthly kingdoms will rise up in power, their dominion is limited. And all the while, the eternal God sits unmoved in sovereign rule over all. Daniel sees in this vision, the playing out in this vision, the truth that was penned earlier, that was read to us earlier in, in Psalm 2. Would you turn there with me to Psalm 2 and let's read it again. Psalm 2. Give me an amen if you're there. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. You can almost hear them screaming, We will not have this man reign over us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. who has been told by the Father, the ancient of days, I will give the nations to you. Verse 10, now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Here the psalmist pictures the wicked nations taking counsel together and conspiring against Yahweh and against his anointed king, the Messiah, all for the express purpose of casting off his authority. But God mocks this conspiracy. He tells them clearly that he has determined, and he alone has determined, who will rule, and that is his son, his king. God speaks to the kings of the earth At the end of this psalm, and lovingly calls them to repent, to be wise and to be warned, to turn from their wicked presumptuous arrogance and serve the Lord with fear, worship him and take refuge in him. The eternal God sits unmoved in sovereign rule over all. And here in Psalm 2 and back in Daniel chapter 7, we see why he is able to sit unmoved, Mocking those who would rebel against him. For he knows that through the enthronement of the Son of Man, the kingdom of God will reign forever. Through the enthronement of the Son of Man, the kingdom of God will reign forever. Would you go back to Daniel 7 with me and let's read again verses 13 and 14. And there we will see that through the enthronement of the Son of Man, the kingdom of God will reign forever. It says there in Daniel 7, 13 and 14, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Daniel sees now in his vision that the wild kingdoms of man have been tried and judged, but the scene is not ended yet. As it's starting to end, a new character enters the throne room, and our focus is immediately drawn to two characteristics right at the first. First, we're told that the figure comes with the clouds of heaven. Now, throughout ancient Near East literature, clouds are known to be the divine transportation for gods and gods alone. And within the Bible specifically, throughout the whole Old Testament, prior to Daniel, only the one true God, Yahweh himself, is spoken of as riding on a cloud. For example, look at Isaiah 19.1. It says, Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes To Egypt. This one who comes before the Ancient of Days is divine. He is a God. And yet, secondly, he says that it was one like a son of man. Now, son of anything is an old idiom to say that you bear a resemblance to that of which you are an offspring. The other person that is called a son of man in the Old Testament over and over again is the prophet Ezekiel, who is fully human. But here it says that this individual is like a son of man. In other words, his character is both divine, riding in the clouds, and human, one like a son of man. He is presented before the ancient of days likewise to be judged, but notice the outcome in contrast to the judgment of the beast. He is judged so worthy of honor that he is given the dominion that was taken From the beasts. He's given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And this is a kingdom that is everlasting and one that shall not be destroyed. In essence, what we have here before us is a scene of the heavenly coronation of Christ. In startling contrast against the kingdoms of man that are judged efficient and wanting, so much so that they're stripped of power, this anointed king. This Messiah is worthy to be crowned king and given everlasting dominion over all God's creation. What did this character do? What did this individual do to be so deserving of this glory? Well, we can look to the new covenant to get our answer. If we fast forward to the end of this Bible we hold in our hands in the book of Revelation, we find ourselves in a similar throne room court scene. All creation at that moment is crying out for one who can purchase back the title deed of creation that has been sold over to sin and to the enemy and to chaos. John, the visionary that is the author of Revelation, begins to weep loudly because he scans the horizon and can find no one who is worthy, no one who is worthy to accomplish this this salvation because no one is righteous not one. But then he is introduced to the risen Jesus, and Jesus is pictured as a lamb that was slain for the sins of his people. And all heaven immediately erupts in praise. This heavenly host we see in Daniel 7 erupts in praise with language similar to Daniel 7. Take a look at Revelation 5, 9 through 12. It says this, and they sang a new song saying, "'Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. "'For you were slain, and by your blood "'you ransomed people for God "'from every tribe and language and people and nation. "'And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, "'and they shall reign on the earth. "'And then I looked and I heard around the throne "'and the living creatures and the elders. "'Notice that the living creatures here "'are in submission to the king, not raging in chaos.' To the creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Can I get an amen? Amen. Only Jesus is worthy to be the son of man described in Daniel. The one given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all nations, all peoples, all tribes shall worship him. Jesus was worthy of all honor and praise because in his humanity, Jesus was in all points tempted as we are and yet did not sin like you and I and the rest of humanity. And because of this, he became our ruler, a ruler that can sympathize with his people and also give himself as the sinless sacrifice for us. We are reminded of this by the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This one who has passed through the heavens reminds us of Daniel 7, but it reminds us that we can approach the throne of grace. No fire of wrath will come out towards us and rightly devour us because Jesus has died in our place. He has given his life for our sins. But then Jesus is also worthy of all honor and praise because he was willing, even in his perfect sinless state, to suffer the wages of sin on our behalf, and only one who is God himself could do that. On earth, Jesus was wrongly tried and convicted and crucified on a cross, taking on himself the entirety of human sin and accepting the just wrath of God in our place. Only in his divine nature could he accomplish this task. And again, the author of Hebrews so perfectly captures this in Hebrews 1, 3 through 4. Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. In the words of the New City Catechism that many of us use to teach our children, since death is the punishment for sin, Christ died willingly in our place to deliver us from the power and penalty of sin and bring us back to God. By his substitutionary atoning death, he alone redeems us from hell and gains for us forgiveness of sin, righteousness, and everlasting life. This, dear friends, is why he is worthy to be given an eternal dominion as the perfect ruling king. No human being has ever or could ever be worthy enough to pay the price and remove the sin that we have committed against our holy God. Without him, we would each suffer the just and eternal punishment of our rebellion against God's reign. On this Palm Sunday, the day where the historic church declares the kingship of Jesus and remembers his victorious entrance into Jerusalem, We as a church look through the lens of Daniel 7 and we see the very coronation ceremony in the throne room of heaven in which Christ in his atoning work on behalf of the Ancient of Days is given the dominion and authority as conquering king. And so we too can cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. Save now, Lord. The work of the cross and the victory of the resurrection cemented Jesus as the anointed king. And this is such an important passage in the life of Christ and in the Gospels that we will look at its implications in the Gospels and how it points to the resurrection of Jesus next week on Easter Sunday. But this morning, I want to end with just a few notes of application as we meditate on this passage and as we approach the Lord's table. First, God's word is clear and promises that one day judgment of men and of nations will occur. Friends, you either believe this or you don't. There is no middle ground. And if you don't believe it, well, that's one thing. But if you do believe it and you are not submitted to Jesus, that is foolishness. Are you assured that you serve the Lord alone and worship Jesus Christ? Or is your walk one foot in, one foot out? There is no such thing in following Jesus as a disciple. Don't gamble with your eternal state before the holy and just eternal God. Turn to him today, repent of your sins, lay your life at his feet and serve him as his disciple. If you don't know what I mean when I say that, we have elders here who would love to talk with you. Ryan's right over there, I'd love to chat with you. Any of us, Tyler's right there, we would love to chat with you guys about what it means to follow Jesus. Second, if you find yourself greatly alarmed as Daniel was as he saw this vision by the chaos of the world around us and even within our own country, if you find yourself getting angry or frustrated or anxious, take to heart the end of the matter. Earthly kingdoms will rise and fall, but the kingdom of God reigns forever. Because of the work of Jesus Christ. Perhaps today the Lord is asking you to take your eyes off of the grotesque and raging beasts of the world, and cast your eyes instead upon the one who is worthy of dominion because of the work of the cross. Look at and take heart, take to heart the words of Daniel 7, 17 and 18, where it says, These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever forever and ever. And friends, be encouraged. And lastly, third, on this Palm Sunday, let's rejoice with the angels of heaven in giving praise to our anointed Savior and King, for he is worthy. Would you agree? Jesus is worthy. Earthly kingdoms will rise and fall, but because of Jesus, the kingdom of God reigns forever.